So this morning, uh, I'm in the third week of an Advent sermon series that I'm doing, that's drawing its theme from the four Advent candles. Uh, two weeks ago, I talked about the hope that Jesus brings. Last week, Eric Hesselbach, thank you, Eric, for preaching, uh, talked about the uh, peace that Jesus brings. And today is going to be about the joy that Jesus brings. And I confess up front, joy is a hard thing to preach on. Uh, I spent a lot of time really meditating and thinking about joy and where joy comes from biblically, and because I think the temptation is to just, you know, down a lot of Red Bull and get up here and, like, get all excited. We're going to talk about joy this morning. But that's not, you know, hype is not the same as a spirit-led joy. And so my prayer this morning is that the Holy Spirit would bring uh, authentic joy into our hearts this morning, not hype, right? Not that kind of manufactured excitement, but a true uh, joy that comes from the Spirit. So let me pray along those lines. Lord, we do ask that you would please pour out your spirit into our hearts and into this place and bring us a true joy that comes from you, that comes from the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Uh, we read a few of those verses this morning, but this is a very familiar passage to many of you. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen the hymn, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is God's word. What brings you joy? When you think about joy, what brings you joy? We've got one of those, uh, you know, TVs in our room with screen, uh, which just kind of has pictures that kind of cycle through, you know, of our kids through the years. That's one of the things that brings us joy, the memories of what we've experienced with our children. UConn basketball brings me joy. (laughs) I enjoy watching them play. I enjoy reading all about them. What else brings you joy? I think of a job well done brings me joy. At the end of a day, if I feel like I actually accomplished what 
God had called me to do. It brings me joy. It brings me joy watching my children do the things they love. What is it that brings you joy, that brings you pleasure, that brings you happiness? What is it that truly deep down just brings you that kind of satisfaction? You know, there's been a lot of uh, really joyous faces on my TV screen lately and a lot of a lot of crushed faces as well. My boys are really into the World Cup and I've been watching the soccer tournament and every, with every game you have a nation that is just jubilant, uh, just you know, in tears and, and elation and then you've got another nation that is just crushed and crying uh, all over who can kick a ball into a net more than another team. It's ridiculous. But again, with every passing game you have this, just this joy and one of the things that truly seems to enhance the joy, if, if you, especially it comes up in sports, is when it seems like all is hopeless, right? When it seems like the team's going to lose and it's going to be all, and then all of a sudden there's that last minute goal and what seemed like it was hopelessness turns into jubilation as victory is snatched from the jaws of defeat. J.R.R. Tolkien, who is best known for the Lord of the Rings, he coined a term for that. He called it eucatastrophe, the sudden joyous turn. And in his, what he wrote, uh, he wrote a, a, a book on, on fairy stories, what we call fairy tales. He said this, it is the mark of a good fairy story of the higher or more complete kind that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventure, it can give to child or man that hears it when the turn comes, a catch of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart, near to or indeed accompanied by tears as keen as that given by any form of literary art and having a peculiar quality. He was trying to defend, you know, fairy stories or fairy tales and those who look down on them as some sort of lesser form of art. And just using this term, this eucatastrophe, just captures that sense when it seems like all hope is lost and all of a sudden comes the turn, the joyous lift. I don't know what story or movie comes to mind. This is the image that comes to mind for me, you know? Can you hear the music in your head already? Right? When it seems like, you know, E.T. and Elliot are going to be caught, all of a sudden the bike starts to fly and the music soars and it's that joyous turn, the eucatastrophe. Defeat seems certain, then all of a sudden victory comes. Joy. Joy is just so necessary to a life worth living. But if you haven't noticed, there's a big problem with joy that I want to try to talk about this morning because it does seem like joy seldom lasts, right? I mean, all of those teams that just experience the joy of victory, every single one of them is going to experience the agony of defeat except one in the end. And so often the joys of our life, even those things that just bring us so much joy can in another five or ten years cause even more pain, maybe, when we lose those things that brought us joy. You think about how when there's someone you love and then you lose them, how it's the fact that they brought you so much joy that causes the depth of such pain and sorrow. Joys in our life seldom last. All those pleasures, all those happiness, all those things, just they're here and we experience them, but then they're gone. And you can only look back at pictures and memories and remember what once was. And sometimes it just causes even more pain to think back on what you lost. So how do we address that problem of joy, the problem of joy that... It's here, but then it's gone. It doesn't seem to last in this world. I have a couple, I was trying to think of that, and I, there's a few ideas that came to mind, two that I don't think really work, and then one that does. 
The first is this. How do you address the problem of, of the joy that's gone, the joy that never stays? That, that, is it first and foremost, do you just keep chasing happiness? Is that the answer? You lose someone, you find someone else. You lose something you love, you find something else you love. You just keep chasing, chasing and chasing after happiness until you have it. It's a problem with that, though. Think of Ecclesiastes 2, 10 through 11. The writer of Ecclesiastes said, all right, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pursue pleasure with my life. And he said, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. That phrase is great, that chasing after the wind. It's like running after something you just can't catch. When you're trying to live your life for earthly happiness and pleasure that's here today and gone tomorrow, it's like chasing after the wind. It's not just the Bible, though. Science also talks about this. Tim Keller wrote in his book, Making Sense of God, he said, on January 7th, 2007, the New York Times Magazine ran an interesting article called Happiness 101. It described positive psychology, a branch of psychology that seeks to take a scientific, empirical approach to what makes people happy. Researchers in this field have found that if you focus on doing things and getting things that give you pleasure, it does not lead to happiness, but produces what one researcher has dubbed the hedonic treadmill. You become addicted to pleasure, and your need for the pleasure fix keeps growing, and you have to do more and more. You're never really satisfied never really happy. Now, certainly, if any of you have any experience with addiction, this rings true, right? You chase the high and chase the high and chase the high and find that you need more and more and more of the tolerance effect or the hedonic treadmill in order to reach that. The more that you're pursuing the things of this world that bring you pleasure, the more you find that you need more and more and more of it. And it's not giving you what your heart is really looking for. And in the end, it's a sure way to make you miserable if you're just chasing after the pleasures of this world. So, okay, so maybe if that doesn't work, maybe you just need to not let your heart get emotionally attached to anything or anyone. Because after all, if you love someone and they break your heart, it crushes you, right? If you love someone and they die or they leave you, it's crushing. So maybe the answer is, instead of just keep chasing people and trying to find more people and more things to love and to find pleasure in. Maybe the answer is just to put a fortress around your heart. Maybe that's the answer. Don't get emotionally attached to anyone or anything. Take a more stoic approach to life. Do not let yourself love your children too much. Do not let yourself love another person too much or love anything too much because inevitably they're all going to leave you or you're going to leave them. They will die or leave. So don't let your heart get attached. C.S. Lewis talked about this in his book, The Four Loves. There's going to be a lot of C.S. Lewis today, by the way. He's talked a lot about joy. He said, there is no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. Your heart will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. 
The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. He says, yeah, you can take that approach to life. You know, your heart gets broken and you start to realize, you know what? I just got to guard my heart and not let myself get emotionally attached to anyone or anything because they're all going to leave in the end. He says, you're going to end up in hell. You're just going to end up in a place where you can't feel anything. You're just dark and cold. Scrooge, as it were. But there is another solution. There is another way. Again, Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. What is, how are you going to deal with the problem that the joys of this world just don't last? That everything you're going to love is eventually going to leave? Luke 10, Luke 2, 10 through 11. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. There is an answer. There is a place to safely put your heart where it will not be crushed and broken, where you will find joy everlasting, and it's with Jesus. Find your ultimate joy in Jesus, not in anything or anyone in this world. Yes, there is real joy to be found in this world. Those examples I gave you earlier do bring me real joy, but it's joy that is fleeting. It's joy that is not going to last forever. And if my ultimate joy is found in anything in this world, my heart will be crushed. But if my ultimate joy is found in Jesus, if that's where my heart is, first and foremost, then I will never lose him, never be crushed. That is the truth of Christmas. That is the truth of the gospel. Good news of great joy for all people. The Savior has been born. He's Christ the Lord. If you put your heart and your joy in anything in this world, it will be crushed eventually. Put your heart, put your joy in Jesus. Again, going to C.S. Lewis. Most people, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And when you think about the things in your life that bring you joy, whatever it may be that came to mind when I asked you that question at the beginning, what is it that brings you joy? There's something about that that is real. It's not a fraud. There's something about that love, something about that fulfillment, satisfaction, whatever it may be, that is true. 
but it's fleeting. It's not the real thing. It is meant to point you beyond it to the real thing, to God, to Jesus. That is where joy is found that is eternal, that will never leave. St. Augustine put it this way. He said, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. The answer is not to stop pursuing joy, right? The answer is not to put your heart in a safe little container and don't let it get emotionally attached to anyone or anything. The answer is to pursue joy, but to recognize that the ultimate joy is found in God. Amen? The ultimate joy is found in him. Pursue him. Pursue joy, but pursue him with all your heart. That is where the ultimate joy is found. Again, C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Maybe you've read John Piper. He wrote a book called Desiring God that was all about this, that it's not about like we need to, you know, be avoiding pleasure as Christians. We shouldn't be going after pleasures, you know, but no, it's recognizing that God made us to, to desire pleasure, to desire joy, but to recognize that pleasure and joy is found in God. That is where the ultimate pleasure in God and joy is found in knowing him. So go after him with all your heart. So what is this joy that Jesus brings? Because some of you are nodding your head and saying amen, and some of you are saying, I don't understand. You mean like going to church is supposed to bring me joy? Is that what you're saying? Like, What does it mean? What is the joy that Jesus brings? Let me go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul says this, As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, also of us, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So he's painting a picture here of, of what our spiritual reality is or was, depending on where you're at today, that we're spiritually dead Apart from Jesus. We're objects of wrath. We're under the judgment of God and we belong to the evil one who has control over us. The spirit of the air, he says there. That's our status without Jesus. But then, here comes the big, the big but in verse four. But because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
You remember that, that word that Jarrah Tolkien coined, you catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn when all seemed lost and then all of a sudden there was this turn and victory is snatched from the jaws of defeat. And as he wrote that piece on fairy stories, he talked about how that points to the you catastrophe, the story, the joyous turn, which is the story of Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of the Savior of the world. And in this passage that I just read, you have the Hugh catastrophe, the story that all the stories point to, that we were dead, unable to save ourselves, unable to make ourselves right with God, that we were headed for a lifetime of separation from God. We were under the control of the evil one, the devil. And on that day that Jesus came, he was on the cross, nailed to the cross. The enemy had won, seemingly. But then came the sudden joyous turn. Jesus rose from the dead. Thank you. Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, overthrowing the devil. And now those of us who were lost, those of us who were without hope, trying to hang on to every fleeting joy of this world and hoping that it would last, but finding that nothing lasts in this world, now we have found Joy everlasting, hope that does not fail, love that is eternal, the eucatastrophe, the sudden joyous turn, Christ risen from the dead. We are saved. We are saved by his grace, by the gift of God. Please understand, I'm not talking about like belief in your head here. That's not where joy lives, right? I'm not just talking about believe in God. I'm talking about a heart level, spirit-filled, you have been captured by a great affection, seized by a great affection, captured by the love of God. And the more that you realize how gloomy it all was, the more joy there will be, right? The darker the sky, the more brilliant the light, the stars shine. The more it seemed like the team was going to lose, the more joyous it was when they won. The more it seemed like it was going to be a terrible ending to the movie or to the story, the more joyous it is when it turns and there's a happy ending. The more you recognize your sin, the more you recognize that before a holy God you were headed to eternal separation, the more joyous it will be when you realize that he has taken all that sin, all that guilt, all that shame on the cross, that he sees you as his beloved child, that every sin has been forgiven, that he has promised you eternal life, that he is with you and will never leave you and never forsake you. All the promises, all that we find in the character of God is yours. The more you see how gloomy it all was, the depth of despair, the more joyous it will be when you see what he's done for you. We're not talking about head knowledge here. We're talking about love, joy, peace, patience, all of the fruits of the Spirit. And if you don't know, if this makes no sense to you, then please ask him. As Jesus said in John 16, 24, until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Every happiness and pleasure in this life is fleeting. Maybe some of you are too young to have recognize that yet, but let me, spoiler alert, let you know. 
every single person that you ever love in this world will die or you will die first. You're all going to be parted from each other. Your health will fade. Your beauty will fade. All the things that you put your hope in, your, that you find joy in in this life, they will not last in this world. And if that is where you're placing your joy, it's going to be a lot of pain ahead for you. But there is a joy that is eternal, that is everlasting, that those angels came to preach about in Luke chapter 2. Behold, I give you great, good tidings of great joy that will be for all people. Ask, and your joy will be complete. If you do not have that joy, if you do not know Jesus in that way, if it's just head knowledge and you have not connected on that heart level with him, this morning, please ask. As Jesus encourages you here, ask that your joy may be complete. Because we need a joy that's not tied to our circumstances. A joy that can be there even when situation is terrible. Even when you go through terrible times. Even when someone you love dies. Even when you have the cancer diagnosis. Even when you lose your job. You need a joy that is not tied to your circumstances. A joy that is not located in this world. You need a joy that can sustain you. That can be your strength. Nehemiah said that. The joy of the Lord is my strength. You need a joy that can sustain you through the hard times. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.10, he said we can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. How is that possible, Paul? That at the same time we can experience the sorrows of this world and yet still rejoice in the Lord. Or James 1, 2 through 3, where James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Again, how is that possible? That at the same time you're experiencing trials that are testing you, that are painful, and at the same time, there's a joy knowing that God has got you. God is in this. God is at work. We're back to Hebrews 12 too. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Again, at the same time, there's enduring the cross being betrayed, nailed to the cross, the Father turning his back, and for the joy set before him at the same time he's doing it. You need a joy that is not located in your family, in your job, in your bank account, in the things of this world. You need a joy that is from outside this world. You need the joy that is found in Jesus to strengthen you, to get you through this hard life. Some of you may be familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism that says the chief end of man. Why are we here? The chief end of man it's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And some have pointed out, including C.S. Lewis and John Piper, that they're the same thing. It's not two things. They're the same thing. Glorifying God by enjoying him forever. We do this When we're glorifying God, that is what we were created to do, and we will enjoy him forever. When we're enjoying him, we're glorifying him. That worship becomes a delight. It becomes a thing that brings us eternal joy. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Sometimes people read this wrongly, right? All right, so how am I going to get that Mustang I really want, right? Or how am I going to get the job I really want? Okay, I got it. If I delight myself in God, he's going to give me the desires of my heart. No, this is saying as your delight becomes him, then you're going to have the desires of your heart because you will have more and more of him, right? As you delight, the more you delight yourself in him, the more of him you have. The more you're delighting yourself in the things of the world, the less of him you're going to have. 
Psalm 1611, you have made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. To glorify God is to enjoy God. You find your greatest joy in him, in worshiping him, in living for him, in loving him. I'm going to read a long passage from C.S. Lewis now that is one of, the, one of my favorite quotes. This is from his book, Reflections on the Psalms, and he was trying to come to terms with the whole idea of praising God. You know, even in that Luke chapter 2 passage, you have the angels saying, glory to God in the highest. And for some of you, again, that makes sense. For some of you, you're like, why does God want people to praise him? Why does he want us to come and worship him? Why does he, want, why does he ask angels and tell us to praise him and worship him? Like, what is that all about? And this is how C.S. Lewis came to make sense of that. He said, We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise even more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. Worse still was the statement put into God's own mouth. Whoso offereth me thanks and praise, he honoreth me. Psalm 50.23. It is hideously like saying, What I most want to be told is that I am good and great. I don't know if any of you have ever wondered this before in your life, but wondering, again, like, what, what is this with God, like, wanting people praising him? Is he some self-centered egomaniac? What's going on here? C.S. Lewis continues, he says, But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, unless, sometimes even if, shyness, or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. It's a great insight. He's saying praise is not some just like, you know, churchy thing. That praise is something we all do when we find something we love. That movie was amazing. And then we want to go and tell people about it and share it with them and watch it with them. Because that's what naturally happens when you love something. When you enjoy something, you praise it. You want to know everything there is to know about it. You want to share it with others. It's a natural thing that happens when you enjoy something. And so this whole enjoying God, praising God thing, the more that you come to know God and, and more that you come to love him, the more that you want to praise him, the more you want to praise him with others. This is the most natural thing. It continues, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The worthier the object, the more intense this delight would be. If it were possible for a created soul fully to appreciate 
that is to love and delight in, the worthiest object of all, and simultaneously at every moment to give this delight perfect expression, then that soul would be in supreme beatitude. Again, I love these insights. He's saying when you enjoy something, you instinctively want to broadcast it and, and, and share it. And you feel like in some way the delight, <coughs> excuse me, the delight is incomplete until you've expressed it. You want to praise it and you want to share it. You want other people to praise it with you. I mean, for goodness sake, social media is built upon that very idea, is it not? It's built upon the very idea that you find something you love and you put it out there to the world and you invite others to enjoy it with you because it's the most natural thing to do is to find something we love and to proclaim it, to praise it, and to invite people to praise it with us. And when we do that and nobody praises it with us, doesn't it feel like the delight is somehow robbed? Because we want everyone to praise it the way we do. And so he continues to say this. It is along these lines that I find it easiest to understand the Christian doctrine that heaven is a state in which angels now and men hereafter are perpetually employed in praising God. To see what the doctrine really means, we must suppose ourselves to be in perfect love with God, drunk with, drowned in, dissolved by, that delight which, far from remaining pent up within ourselves, is incommunicable, hence hardly tolerable. Bliss flows out from us incessantly again in effortless and perfect expression. Our joy no more separable from the praise in which it liberates and utters itself than the brightness a mirror receives is separable from the brightness it sheds. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, but we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. You may want to like read that on your own <laughs> when you get home because there was a lot of SAT words in there, but it's very just deep and very powerful. Again, that his brain couldn't understand why does God want people to praise him? Like what is this? And why are the angels praising him? And why do people in the Psalms say, praise God, you know? And what is that all about? He says, that's just the way the heart works, that when you find something you enjoy, you instinctively want to praise and glorify it and honor it and learn everything you can about it and invite others to learn about it with you and to praise it with you. And that's instinctively what we do when we find something we enjoy. And so again, can I encourage you to go back to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came to this world this dark world toward dark lives, to live, to die, to rise again, to save you, to rescue you, to bring you love, to bring you joy eternal. Something that's not dependent on your circumstances. It doesn't depend on whether anyone loves you or not. It doesn't depend on whether you have a job you love or not. It doesn't depend on how much money's in your bank account. It doesn't depend on whether your country wins the World Cup or not. It does not depend on any of that. It's a love, it's a joy outside of this world that is yours forever. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, if this makes no sense to you again, ask him to show you that joy, to give you that joy. And the more you have that joy, the more you will want to praise him, and the more you will get what heaven is all about, that on that day, those two will become one. We will perfectly know him, perfectly praise him, perfectly enjoy him forever and ever. Why would we want to do anything else? As Jesus says, John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That is what he's come to offer you. 
And so let me close with this invitation, Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. Amen. Let's pray. God, we have no, we don't, we don't have the faintest idea of the joy that is to come, of what it will be like to be with you, where every other attraction in this world will fade away. Everything else that has captivated us, anything in this life that has promised us happiness or pleasure will just fade away when we see you face to face, when we are with you, when we're enjoying you forever. Lord, may the joy of the Lord be our strength today for those who are going through circumstances that have got them crushed and depressed. Lord, lift their eyes up to you to find the joy that is eternal and everlasting that cannot be touched by the circumstances of this world. May your joy be their strength today. Help us, Lord, to not to look to the things of this world to give us what only you can give us, Lord. Fill us with your joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.